Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. Yeah, it's all about service and love, and and uh, and then when those gifts do manifest, as long as you're using them uh, in loving service, I think you're good to go. That was Father Nathan Castle, a Catholic priest and career campus minister, who explains, quote, I don't see myself as serving people of only one religious tradition. The word Catholic means universal, and I'm a priest that God has called to serve the universe including the parts of it we cannot see, close quote. You will hear my entire conversation with Father Nathan right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance and asking you no matter what to please share the link far and wide. Now, let's get back to the show. Father Nathan Castle has written, quote, I believe we are eternal. I believe the creator who made us loves us wildly, beyond belief. My mission is to help people live in the present, feel loved, and dwell in joyful hope. As a Catholic priest, I specialize in helping those who feel stuck, whether in this earthly life or in the afterlife, experience freedom. Close quote. Father Nathan is here with me today to talk about all of this and more. Father Nathan, welcome to Post Woke. It's great to be with you, Mickey. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. Now, I would love at some point to hear about your work with trauma survivors in this earthly life. But first, who are you referring to helping in the realm of afterlife and why are they stuck? Well, um, the short story is about 27 years ago, I began to receive dreams in the night that were not my own dream content. Uh, uh, contact dreams that a lot of the spiritual tradition, certainly the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, reference people uh, being spoken to by the divine during the night, during sleep. Uh, So that started happening to me when I was in my early 40s. And uh, they they came about once a week and they, they showed me without too much gory graphic detail, violent deaths. People who had died violently were showing me in a dream uh, how they died suddenly and unexpectedly. And then it turned out that uh, I I knew that I was being asked to 
do something spiritual for them. It felt a little bit, Mickey, like having a pager. <laughs> Many priests have to take a turn if they live near a, a medical center, a hospital, especially a trauma center, uh, having a pager on the nightstand okay. in case there, someone asks for a priest during the night. So, uh, and when that happens, you have to respond to it, rouse yourself, pay attention, ask questions about the room number, the patient's name, uh, their, uh, whoever's there with them, that kind of thing. Well, it's it. Um, when this began to happen to me, it just felt like being paged uh, differently. Oh, that's a fascinating uh, comparison. Uh, it, I think it works. Yes. And so it turned out that you know I just I, I I believe we we can talk back and forth between this plane and the next, even without extraordinary spiritual gifts. I believe anybody that has a spiritual practice that can speak from their heart to their deceased loved one will be heard. It's a little more difficult to necessarily get a message back, but everyone can at least send, I believe. Um, anyway, the um, the way that it evolved, I I knew I was being asked to do something, but I wasn't sure quite what. So I got with a prayer partner all those years ago. Uh, who We were on a retreat, so we were kind of on a campground. Uh, I, I knew I'd see her in the morning. So I, I asked her, at a, you know, could we get together at a break and pray? And when we did, she said, well, whoever this man is, he really wants to talk to you. Would it be okay if I let him do that? And we, I knew she had that gift. And um, we first went to St. Michael the Archangel, who's in my tradition, heaven's protector. Uh, he's the patron of police lots of times. And uh, we protected ourselves with, with him and Mary, mother of Jesus, uh, St. Dominic, the founder of the order I belong to. Um, anyway, I did you know, surrounded myself with uh, friends in high places and then let it go. Uh, and we we heard from this man and what his dilemma was, and uh, then we got to work helping him. Wow. So before I ask you more about that, does this, this man where he is when he's contacting you, is this connected in any way to the Catholic concept of purgatory? It can be. Uh, that word is only used by Catholics. And I don't deal with only Catholics in this work. In okay. fact, uh, not even all that often. We're only a, you know, we're, there are 1.4 billion of us out of 8 billion. So um, there are lots of people that don't use that vocabulary. But uh, yeah, I, I, but I think it works. Okay. It's a place to purge means to cleanse, which is one metaphor for uh, moving through your incompleteness or your troubles. Okay. And, and I like that you, you know, you've said you've done, I've listened to other podcasts with you and you said you've done work with people in this earthly realm who have been um, victims of trauma. And it sounds like, like that victims of trauma can be in either realm, that sense of stuckness where you can't get past what happened to you. And you're, let's say in the earthly realm, I think I could speak more knowledgeably, obviously, where someone in trauma could be stuck in sort of a fight or flight um, response and and be hyper vigilant and unable to resolve or process the trauma. Did is that what you felt? This person, this first person reaching out to you, was saying, "I can't resolve what happened. Can you help me do so and then move on?" It, it, would that be a fair appraisal? That would be a component of what he presented. You know. When you walk into a store or if you've ever been a shopkeeper, the first thing you ask a person is, how can I help you? And mm. counselors do pretty much the same thing, especially upon a first meeting. Uh, what is it you're here for? How can I help? And so that's pretty much what we did is ask how we could help. 
Uh, he had been traumatized by his death. He burned to death uh, on the the engine of a car. He had not been in an automobile accident, but he was a repairman, was wearing greasy clothes, and somehow caught fire and died at 20 years old. Oh, and boy. So he was uh, not surprisingly angry, but he was angry in a way that really didn't serve him well afterwards. Uh, he had been taught that pe the reason people die is because God takes them, and he said, who the hell does he think he is taking me just when my life was getting good? So, wow. So, how do you how do you respond to something like that? And how did you figure out what to do to help him? We just used common sense. Um, he explained to us that the thing that he wanted more than anything was to greet his wife when she died, and the event that took his life had happened forty years earlier, when I was four years old, and. We asked him, well, what have you been doing for all this time? And he said, nothing much. Uh, but his wife was now in her early 60s dying of cancer. And he said, I want to greet her when she passes, but I can't the way I am. So we had to figure out, well, what is that way? And I also had to tell him, and we're going to have to hurry you because cancer has its own schedule. It's not going to wait on you. And you're most people don't like being rushed. So sure. If at, any, if at any point we're pushing you too hard, all you need to do is say so and we'll back off. It, it, you're in charge of you. <laughs> it will help. And over a few sessions, about three sessions over three week time, we helped him calm down. And I thought that the thing that sounded, I, I told him, I said, you know, when you talk about your wife, you sound like a caveman, like you own the exclusive rights to her. And given the opportunity when she dies, you might just grab her by the hair and pull her into your cave. Wow. He didn't like that, but I was being <laughs> blunt on purpose. I was, I was trying to hurry the process, and I said, remember, you know, you, you were her husband, and you're the only person with whom she's had a child. You're a very important figure, but you're not the entire show. You know, she's got other people that love her, too, who might be just as eager to greet her as you are. So could you just calm down and be a gentleman? Wow. So, um, just on a quick, quick side tangent here. So he made it crystal clear to you that wherever he was, he could see his wife's life as it was playing out. That's right. And that was what he chose to do. Of all the options that were available to him upon his death, that's the thing that he opted to do. Wow. And he did that consistently for 40 years. Wow. Wow. And, and then to get back to what you said, I could see why these um, stuck souls, for lack of a better phrase, um, are seeking out someone like you because you you do sound like you're you're going to be a true guide in the sense of what you said to this to this young man. Um, I guess it's fair to say young man because he died as yeah, a young he, man, right? Yes, he, he died at twenty. Yeah. So 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 he's not he's he's permanently twenty. Is that is that how it works? Or well, in his case, because he really didn't welcome change really at all okay. he, he that's just the way that his consciousness responded to his sudden death is that he opted to uh isolate essentially okay. uh, we're, i don't believe that we're really absolutely allowed to do that because i don't think the universe permits it uh, he he had a guardian angel that he was unaware of that uh that was that stayed near him but he made it clear he didn't want contact with people. And so his guardian was very much a silent partner. Wow. So it, it feels to my ears like he 
like any 20 year old, he had a fair amount of growing up to do, like not to mention his, his uh, caveman tendency towards women. And yeah. he maybe couldn't reach out until he was, um, had matured enough and evolved enough to be the person who would be able to handle that move and also greet his former wife like a like a gentleman because I know I've listened to some of your podcasts and and I'm familiar partly with this one because I know that at some point he um, he starts to identify himself as the perfect gentleman which is which is kudos to you for for encouraging him to look inside himself and make those changes but yeah he had that within him all the time uh, I you know we could all be uh, kind people and respectful people when we <laughs> put our minds to it. And just being called on it was all he really needed. And uh, that story is well told on a lot of other podcasts, including my own. But yeah. in the end, he, he did uh, tell us big news. My wife passed. We asked, how did it go? And he said, it's pretty much the way you described. There, were, there weren't a lot of us, but there were a few. And I got to do what I wanted to. I got to be there when she passed. And so we said, well, then it sounds like our job is done. It was a little like saying goodbye to a friend that you'd never met, if you could imagine that. Uh, and yeah. I just said, uh, you know, you're, we, we know about you that you're very good at watching people. And, uh, and we know that you now know how to greet someone when they dies. Would you mind keeping an eye on me? And would you be there to greet me when I die? And he said, why, sir, I'd be most honored. Just look for the perfect gentleman. Aww. And yeah. So he's very dear to me. Uh, why wouldn't he be? Why and wouldn't so he be? Absolutely. Like what a turning point in your life. And and I do want to take a second to say to listeners, I'm not going to ask Father Nathan to recount every story because he has told them eloquently as a guest, but he has a podcast, The Joyful Friar, which the links are in the show note. And, and so if you go there, you can you can listen to them. They're also on YouTube. You can um, pick out the stories that you might think are interesting. I think they're all interesting. I, I liked Buddy, the um, metaphorical train conductor, and, yeah. and the young uh, South Asian girl, Ronnie, Ronnie. and I, who, who um, is in the afterlife, but told you that she, one of her goals remains writing a book, which as a writer, I was like, uh, my jaw dropped with, with happiness, the concept that you, that you could keep writing and, sure. or in her case, take up writing in that state. It's, it's, so I really, really encourage people that rather, rather than have him tell me that, tell the same stories that are already eloquently told to make sure they click those links. But I, I'd like to, ask you um, a personal thing where as this became a reality to you um, how did you choose who to confide in what were the responses you got from peers colleagues friends family um, and, and obviously it's it's a major turning point in your life to be for this gift to emerge um, so the two questions is what kind of response did you get and and did you ever have an idea that this gift lurked inside you well, the gift of, uh, of allowing speech through, it's commonly called um, channeling. I don't use that word in the Catholic Church because it upsets people. Yeah. Uh, they, couldn't, they connect it with the idea of uh, the occult and the possibility that you're being you know, possessed or demon messed with or something. And so I, I don't think it's necessary to think that way. The Jew, Jewish and Christian traditions have the prophetic tradition where a given being will be asked by God to allow their voice to be used for God's purpose. 
uh, at many Jewish and Christian services, uh, a reading from one of the prophets is done and the prophet might, there, there might be, the reader might have to do a narrator voice. The prophet was going from this town to the next. When he got there, he said, and then they have to change to the prophet's own voice. And then at some point, the prophet says, thus says the Lord, I want you to stop oppressing the poor. They have to shift to yet a third voice to accommodate the prophet allowing God to speak. So that's that belongs to the heart of our traditions. I don't believe that that prophetic speech needs to necessarily be thought of as something dark or dangerous. And so I, I concur. And I've heard you say something like this on previous podcasts, and I did a little homework. I was wondering, I didn't think of it as Old Testament. I was wondering, I, I found something in Corinthians about those who prophesies, prophesies are greater than those who speak in tongues. And it, it's not connected to that section. You're going back further to the Old Testament prophet. Yeah, but, but that's St. Paul. And yeah, he, he's a, a wise person and he's a friend. He's he's manifested in my life. Uh, uh, one of the things I like about being a Catholic Christian is we have a mystical tradition that goes way back, and we don't necessarily need to be so suspect of every last oh, thing. Yes, uh, amen. Uh, we just need to be have discernment and humility and love, especially love. Um, anyway, yeah, Paul talks about the, the gifts of prophecy and and uh, and his early Christian communities. Apparently, that that gift manifested a lot. All right, so I'd like to come back to the mystical part, but I want to I want to return back to how how you chose to confide in peers and colleagues and friends, and what kind of response you got from them. Well, my first prayer partner and I uh, continued to live in the same town for several years subsequent to that first event, and I would meet with her uh, on a somewhat regular basis because the stories kept coming. It felt clear that the Holy Spirit was asking me to do this. And so we would just arrange a time. We were both busy people. So it was make an appointment just as you and I made an appointment to do this podcast. Mm -hmm. These things only happen if you plan them. Uh, so we, we for an, a long while, we did that. And then uh, di different people entered in where I would say, you know, I think you, all, the, all the prayer partner really needs to do is be a compassionate listener. They don't need to manifest an extraordinary gift other than being kind uh, it's important that they not be amazed. Uh, these people are not animals in a zoo. You know, we don't want to gawk at them and be amazed at, at uh, all this. We just need to have our heads about us and be helpful. And there are plenty of compassionate listeners around, and I've been fortunate to have several of them cross my way. And then, then I'll just get a little bit of a general prompt, like, have you thought about making him a prayer partner or her a prayer partner? Mm. And when I get that prompt, I'll think, you know, yeah, good idea. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Now, you you mentioned earlier that you don't own, you know, I mentioned purgatory and you said, well, not everybody that has um, contacted you. And it's in the realm of 500 souls at this point. Am I correct? That's right. Okay. So not every one of them, but of course, is, is, is or was um, Catholic. Um, so I'm curious about two questions about them. You, you personally, after you learn this person's name and a little about them. Are you ever tempted to try and like look them up online to learn more about them as earthly beings? And well, let me just stop there. H have you done any, have you looked them up out of curiosity of the people that have contacted you? Yeah. In the, in, in the 
realm. Yeah, I'm a member of IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies, and there are a lot okay. of consciousness studies people and people with lots of different phenomenological events in their life. And they usually call that verification. Okay. That question that you just asked, it has a name. It's at his, do you verify? And oh. um, I tried doing a little bit of that early on, but um, had, Mickey, do you ever watch any of those crime shows that have some geeky person that is at a bank of computers and with almost no data they can discover? <laughs> <laughs> and they I can do it in a matter of minutes, They're just yeah. a few keystrokes and suddenly they've got the suspect. It just doesn't work that way. And many of those things are behind a firewall and you have to become a member with a username and a password and pay a fee. It's just not that simple. And I kind of gave up on that. I just said, I haven't, I'm a busy man. I just don't have the time to do that. Yeah. And I said to the Lord, if you ever want that done, all you have to do is say so. And then you have to provide the means for it to happen. And I was told within the last year or so, it's not like every time I say a prayer, I get a, you know, a, 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 a direct answer or a whisper in my ear, but sometimes I do. And the last time I asked that uh, was uh, not yet. Okay. All right. I appreciate that. Now, the yeah. other question I had related to these roughly 500 um, individuals who've contacted you, um, I assume a fair amount of them talk at least a little about their afterlife experience. Have you recognized from these conversations um, some common universal threads of how these souls describe the afterlife? I, there, there's some, although um, it's important to keep in mind that the people that I get almost all died sudden violent deaths. Okay. So what percentage of the world's population do you think that's true of? Yeah, I don't know, but it's, it's uh, definitely not the majority. No, it's not the majority, and it may, uh, I hope, fewer than 10%. Yes, yeah. But whatever, uh, most of us die of illnesses or old age or <laughs> something. But anyway, uh, so there are already a small subset that died a, a sudden violent death. And then we don't use any of their stories publicly without going back a second time to ask their permission. Uh, Ray, the first person, the story that I told earlier in this podcast uh, was the only person that took more than one session. We were still finding our way. Okay. Uh, ever since, it's never taken more. And a session usually is about 40 minutes. Okay. Uh, it doesn't take all that long. And some of that is just getting to know each other uh, the, the way that anybody does when you start a new relationship or a new conversation. But anyway, they um, they do, We when we do the follow-up to ask their permission to use their story, they could simply say yes or no, and that would be the end of it. But most of the time, they give us an update, what what they've been doing since the last time, which is a very human way of interacting. You know, well, yeah. I, I had dinner with friends last night that I hadn't seen in about six months, and so we caught up. Absolutely, yeah. But, uh, it's, uh, uh, so I'm sorry, they, go ahead. They, well, they give you um, some updates and what happened after they did their, what we call it a crossing. And... Uh, for example, one young woman who had, she had, was in a car crash at the age of 24. She was paraplegic until at 36. She was dropped by the dial-a-ride van guy. Oh, boy. Uh, as, as her wheelchair was being put in a van, uh, she hit her head and died. Well, uh, she, was, she was angry that there was an afterlife because life had been so hard for her. She, was, she wasn't really looking forward to more of it. Although uh, after we helped her do her crossing, 
she she told us that um, so far and what she's chosen to do next was to be a 10 year old girl doing somersaults on the lawn. Uh -huh. And she said, nobody's telling me to stop this nonsense and get in here and do the dishes. <laughs> I'm just a kid on the lawn. And she said, I'm sure I'll get tired of it, but I haven't yet. Oh, what a lovely choice. Yeah, that's all she wanted to do. Oh, now when someone like her contacts you, is this, um, you've spoken or written about this where there's a difference between having a dream and receiving a dream. So when yes. these individuals, it's, I would assume that's the receiving part of that equation. Yes. In the very first one, it began with me finishing a round of golf with a friend. We walked from the 18th green into the clubhouse to have a drink. And when we got in it, we discovered that we were in a silent auction for a charity. Right. Well, that's my life. I've run nonprofits, churches and stuff for most of my life. That's one of the ways you do it. Uh, but at this particular nonprofit auction, there was this horrid piece of art on the wall. I called my friend's attention to it and said, look at that god awful thing. And I walked toward it and it walked to or it moved across the room towards me. And it, uh, the movie of Ray on the burning to death on the uh, engine of a car played out. So the first part of it was my dreamscape. Oh, playing okay. golf with a friend, but the part about somebody burning to death on the hood of a car felt completely different. It felt other. And so I've, and I knew in the moment that I was being contacted and that I, that I was being contacted for ministerial purposes. You know, I'm a priest, but it's not like every time the phone rings, somebody wants to go to confession or needs counseling or something. Sometimes they just are friends that are phoning me to see how I'm doing. Uh, but this felt like the kind of contact that called me into action as a minister. And, uh, but many of them are, uh, they, when they tell us what they're doing later, it's just sweet stuff there. Uh, one of the things is we can learn in the afterlife. You mentioned the idea of writing a book. Yes. Well, um, uh, you, that's, a, that's something you, you can do. One thing I like to tell older people that feel like life has passed them by somehow that if they really have a regret of something that they really truly deeply wanted and it never came to pass, hold that thought and bring it with you. <laughs> if it's if it's important in the afterlife, the afterlife will provide an opportunity for you to be that ballerina or that football quarterback or <laughs> whatever it is that you feel like you got, uh, if, if not cheated of, just disappointed that you didn't get an opportunity to do something. Oh, what a comforting so, thought. I think so. Absolutely. And and so when your dream, to use the example you gave, when you shift from your playing golf, something you love to do, to that yeah. art auction, it's as if you you shifted into a form of lucid dreaming because you're aware at that moment, oh, I'm – maybe when you were playing golf in the dream, you weren't at that moment aware. Look at me playing golf in a dream, but when that when – that, that just horrible artwork started moving towards you, you suddenly would lucid in the sense, oh, I'm in a dream and this unusual thing is happening. Would you say that's sure. like a lucid and dream? I think so. And, and you know, we don't know what we don't know. You know, on, in the morning, you someone might ask you, did you have any dreams? And you might say, yeah, I dreamt about this and that. And, but then there also might have been a dream that you can't even recall having. Yeah. And so uh, I'm sure that happens too. I'm sure that sometimes people attempt to reach me and find that it didn't work and they go on to another option. Uh, but, but I do, uh, and I, I've, 
I've over the course of my life, I'm 67 years old, and I've been able to remember a dream most nights for most of my life. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I, I went through a spell where I didn't. And then very recently, I did. I read a book on remembering dreams and lucid dreaming, and I started to be, go to sleep far more intentionally. And it was immediate that I started remembering dreams, sometimes two or three in a night. And it was it felt like a gift, even if the dreams were indecipherable or sometimes yeah. uncomfortable. I always, I think most people enjoy waking up and knowing what just happened in eight hours of their life. What were they doing? What were they thinking about? Otherwise, it feel, I mean, it's obviously wonderful to sleep and healthy, but you want to feel like, hey, what was I doing in the astral? What, who was I in touch with? And, and so uh, that's great that you could say that you've remembered your dreams almost every single night. And Well, and I put some effort into it in, in my late adolescence, my late teens and, and uh, my 20s. And that's the age group I've worked with for much of my life because I've been a campus minister. But, you know, I was resolving uh, my own struggles and uh, trying to figure out who I was in those years. And uh, dreaming and studying dreams was a tool that I was pointed towards and I found it helpful. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and real quick, because I want to jump on something you said I didn't expect for you to say when that sometimes people might try to contact you, but it doesn't, for whatever reason, it doesn't work and they go on to other options. Do you have any idea how many other people are doing this kind of work? I've met some because of podcasts and because I go to IONS conferences, the International Association for Near the Studies, and people hear of this and go, I didn't know anybody else did it. But wow. Uh, and they have lots of different methodologies and many of them are not clergy or, or necessarily even practitioners of a formal faith tradition. One lady told me she does it while she quilts. Wow. There's something about her her habit of quilting or her hobby that was contemplative. And she explained that it involves different layers of different kinds of materials. And that as she's using these different kinds of materials, level upon level, a layer upon layer, that she helps people move from afterlife layer to layer. Wow, what a beautiful meditative uh, picture you just painted there. And, yeah. and I never even talked to her again. It was just one conversation. But I'd say maybe three or four times a year I get email that from people that say it happens to me too. And then once in a while I'll do a phone call with people just to compare notes. Um, one thing that I offer sometimes is that um, sometimes people have never been taught that this doesn't have to be disorderly in their life. For example, if you're cooking and you've got little kids and somebody shows up in the kitchen and is trying to get your attention, you can tell them not now, but later. Oh, okay. okay. Or sometimes people will be visited while they're driving, which is not safe. Yes. And so you can tell them, you can set up office hours and you can, <laughs> you can let it be known that, that this person does that this way. And here's how, uh, if we, if you want to avail yourself of their services, here's the best way to do it. Okay. Well, that's fascinating because because it, it's the same advice you would give in any other situation. You have to set personal boundaries. You can't turn yourself into a martyr. You need you need to balance out these priorities. And so, it might, while it might be tempting for certain people to be like, "I just want to be of help all the time," that's not realistic for a human being. And, yes. And did you ever do? Um, uh, did Did you learn to swim as a child? Yes. And did you work? Did you do life saving classes? 
No, I did it like in a, in a city pool here in New York City, just kind of figuring it out. Well, we were, my parents were big on, on water safety and we all went through Red Cross training. And okay. it has, it's like you get badges or something, you know, there's different levels of it all the way to senior life saving. And when you're at senior life saving, one of the things you have to do is uh, put on a bunch of clothes over your bathing suit. And then somebody gets in the water and it pretends to be the drowning victim. And you have to quickly take your clothes off, at least boots and stuff that would weigh you down. Uh, and then you're taught how to approach the drowning victim, but you have to approach them from behind and not in their line of sight. Mm. If you come at them from the front, they'll see you coming. And in their um, desperation to try to stay above the water, they might drown you. Interesting. You're supposed to approach them from the rear, get your arm under their neck, hold their nostrils above the water line, and then try to swim them to safety. Uh, I, I just tell people don't allow, don't allow a, a, a thrashing uh, afterlife soul to drag you down. That's uh, wonderful advice. They yeah. need to, uh, and they need to know that this that there's an, this this process can be orderly and it doesn't have to be done in a panic. You're not going to accomplish much uh, 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 in a panic. I couldn't agree more. It, I've I've learned this as my life has gone on, also just in a more general sense that that there is a absolute it is an absolute skill to learn how to be a good helper like sometimes you could have the greatest intentions like you said swimming directly towards the person to use your example but you can you can sort of transfer that into any aspect of life where you think yes. you're helping someone in and reality there's there there is a there is a blueprint to it to some degree which you have the freedom to tinker with in case by case but but um if you really, really want to be a helper, like that's a skill to learn and to continue honing. It's not a destination. You you never finish product as a helper. You just keep learning how to help people. Yes, and it, it reminds me. I'm I'm a you know obviously Christian, and this week we have we have started Holy Week, and then Passover begins on Wednesday for the, for Jews. And in, in Jesus is a Jewish storyteller, and he spoke in parables a lot of the time. And parable is from the word parabola, which if you remember that from high school math, mm -hmm. is a big arch, like the St. Louis Arch. Yes. Uh, except it has a mathematical genetic code. You know, you, you take these equations and you plot them along a graph and, it, and then it turns into this particular shape. But it, you, it gets you from point A to point B, but it's not a straight line. It's indirect. And it's indirect on purpose because the shortest distance between two points might not give you the greatest understanding. You might need to go through a, a, a story arc that brings you to the truth, but you might have leapt to a conclusion that you thought was true if you'd just gone the short way. Oh, excellent. Yeah, there's so much con context and nuance involved. There are times, obviously, that you want the shortest distance between two points in, in like, like in urgent situations. But as you said, it's not, it's, it's, for example, your work, it's not always that it's urgent that it has to happen at the moment you're first contacted. And, then and, gives you and the people that come to, to me and to my prayer partners have all been vetted. They're not random. And, and they're not necessarily coming under their own volition uh, exclusively. They have a care team that's been helping them since their traumatic death, and they've progressed to the point where they're ready to make a move, and we help them move. Kind of the way of discharge staff at a medical center helps oh. you out the door on the day you leave the hospital. 
Oh, that's also a very comforting thought to know that they're not completely alone. And you mentioned earlier, whether they're aware of it or not, they have a guardian angel. The, these are extremely comforting thoughts. Now, now I don't want to give the corniest cliche question here, but when you describe someone just showing up out of nowhere, I'm sure someone, many people have asked you this, but what did you, do, do people ask you questions comparing this to the movie, The Sixth Sense? That's one of my favorite movies. Uh, uh, I've, I don't know how many times I've seen it. But I can yes. imagine. Yeah. Um, the, and the, uh, the parts uh, uh, in that story, the, the young child, um, his experiences are largely visual and uh and in in his case they were in uh in daytime alertness Uh, and that's not my experience i've met people that do see ghosts and that's really not my experience i think i've done that twice but uh, not 500 times uh but the but the thing that he was that that uh cole i think is the character's name uh he's compassionate he listens and he figures things out <laughs> yeah he's only six but he fi- he figures out how to help an adult uh, oh yeah he, what a, what a role model of, of a gifted human being regardless I, of age i love that story i have one similar to it in one of my books there's a, a girl who's only 10 years old at the time of her death she fell from a tree and died and she was in a place with lots of other people that died by falling and she said we're all here but uh and she she was a little embarrassed that she became the spokesperson and because we were in a crowd and she said i don't think i'm the smartest one it's just that somebody asked me to do this and if anybody else wants to take over go ahead Mm -hmm. but she explained to us that these people all feel like they're on the bottom because they fell to their death and they feel like they can't get up and and so she devised, she thought, you know what, what if we could get them to know that um, that they, they don't have bones that could break anymore, they don't have blood that would leak out of a broken place. If they fell now, it wouldn't even hurt. Uh, she, she, got, she started thinking it through. And then she decided, you know what, sometimes falling is fun, like when you have a birthday party with a bouncy house. Oh. <laughs> well, she was seriously <laughs> underestimating herself when she said she wasn't the smartest one in the group. She was. And My she goodness. decided, you know, what if we could get them to have fun falling? And so she, uh, she asked for a bouncy house, and she got people to bounce up and down and... Then she said, look, you're not dead. You're just bouncy. Oh, my goodness. So there was a kind of, you know, and the little child shall lead them. That's a, yes. a, a, a lovely story. But, uh, and she's, uh, uh, she, she dealt with, I, I, you also referenced the uh, buddy who became the conductor. Once in a while, I'll deal with people that are in some sort of group where they're, they are together because they died in a similar way. And they're not being punished. Uh, but they're all kind of making their way through a similar death. And then once in a while, they'll come, that will come in a dream and will lead people out. But they don't have to leave if they don't want to. It's like there'll always be a next bus. You don't have to take this one. But oh, if you're ready, gotcha. if, if you'd like to get on, you can go this time. Oh, that's wonderful. And and yeah. I feel like um, this talk may surprise some people because 
I think the word you used earlier when you said that there is a mystical tradition, it, it feels and sounds mystical, but that doesn't have to be woo-woo as, as people tend to shy away from it in our current society. Um, when, when you say that um, particularly Dominican Catholicism has a, because because I went to twelve years of Catholic school, but I went, but my priests and nuns came out of the Franciscan, and I only very 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 recently. I'm talking about this year, all these years of having been in Catholic school, and I think maybe you can relate to this in the sense that if you're in a Franciscan Catholic school and church, you kind of can be sheltered that this is the, this is it, this is Catholicism. There's no other way. And earlier this year. To the first time of my knowledge, I mean, it could have happened and I didn't realize it. I was in a Dominican Catholic church and um, in New York City, because that's where I'm at. It's uh, mm -hmm. St. Catherine, Catherine of Saint Siena. Catherine. Okay. And, and I was listening and watching and recognizing a lot of it. But other times I was like, oh, this is different. And, and, and I, I felt from listening to the priest, because it wasn't a mass, it was a meeting that took place in the church to talk I about see. mystical stuff and, and particularly kinds of um, stories of saints. And I came out of it with my friend who, thankfully she invited me to do this, feeling like, wow, this is the more mystical side of Catholicism. Would you say that is in your mind is true? And, and, and what do you feel is mystical about your, your traditions? Well, for one thing, um, the, I love words, and uh, the root of, of mystical or mysticism has to do with being initiated, having, having started or begun. So I think it's important, like St. Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage that's used at weddings all the time, love is patient, love is kind, and so mm -hmm. on. In the, in the end, there are three things that last, faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love, that all, all the gifts uh, belong to love. And if you begin to be arrogant about, uh, you know, you have a, a, a cool gift that other people don't, well, that's just nonsense. It's not helpful. It's arrogant. So that's important that, uh, that humility accompany any of these gifts that might somehow seem exalted. Uh, but then the other part is that if you believe that you and God uh, love each other, uh, have you been a loved person, would you say? Yes. Um, well, then don't you kind of merge into the other person and they become more like you and you become more like them? Absolutely. That's just the way love operates, uh, uh, any kind of love. And uh, uh, when we love God, we become more like God and God becomes like us. And so for, on the human end, it's not surprising that you would manifest some gifts that seem to be supernatural, superhuman natural when you begin to interact with the divine in, in ways that just become second nature. That's, and I was taught that as a child to expect that, that that's just the way it is. Wow. I, I, I can't, I don't want to condemn or criticize my original training and studying because it's quite possible, this is many years ago, so it's quite possible that I wasn't receptive to it. And at some point during my, initial grammar school, first to eighth grade of St. Patrick's grammar school that I was in, I reached a point where I got in with the cool crowd and it wouldn't be cool to ask questions like this. So I will, I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing, but I don't feel like I was challenged 
to think along the lines of what you just said or what I was listening to in at the um, St. Catherine, the Dominican church. And I had this little bit of like, oh, I got some catching up to do because it's not, I don't want to think, oh, it's too late. But I'm like, I can rediscover my original um, conditioning or training and, 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 uh, just basically the the paradigm in which I grew up in, but I can expand on it because I love everything you just said. Like I want, I, I'd like, I feel more attracted to it with a mystical component in it. Yes. And if that attraction is about service, that's best. If it's not about having a trophy in your trophy case, yes. or another star in your crown or one more reason for us all to admire you or something like that. If, if you, if you pursue a spiritual gift for those kind of reasons, it won't be given you. I appreciate that because, because like any human being, I could be susceptible to that. I could just say, look at me. I just figured out the other side of Catholicism. And, and like you said, put a trophy on my, on my shelf and I will carry that reminder with me that you just gave me. Yeah. It's all about service and love. And, and, uh, and then when those gifts do manifest, as long as you're using them uh, in loving service, I think you're good to go. Thank you. Now, um, you doing okay with time so far? I am, yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm not very limited. I'm going to play golf in a little while, but I'm nice, not nice. Um, I want to at the end come um, wrap up a bit, but I do want to ask one more Catholicism-related question. Um, yeah. Very recently, a friend of mine came to visit me, and she grew up in a Pentecostal. Uh, church. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, I would love to see the local Catholic church, which happens to be one right down the block from me. We speak in blocks in New York City. It's literally yeah. 50 steps from me is St. Joseph. And I brought her in. It's a beautiful church. And I brought her in there. And she asked me a question that I will say in all my years of being Catholic and being like in Catholic schools, I had never pondered. I never heard asked. She said, um, she said, you know, when I see a, a Methodist church or Lutheran church or anything like that, I see crosses, of course. But when I go into a Catholic church, I see a crucifix. And she said, why is the crucifix centered with, with a dying Jesus on it, as opposed to centering what happened a couple of days later and centering the resurrection instead of the crucifix. I had no answer for that. I don't know if there is technically an answer, but I'm on the phone with you now and I'm going to just ask you for your thoughts on that. Well, there are um, a lot of ways I, I could answer that. The idea of having the corpus, the dead body of the, the or the dead or dying Christ I think is about a thousand years old. I don't think it all goes all the way back to the beginning of the faith. Okay. I think um, early iconography mostly had crosses that did not have the corpus on them. Um, it's an interesting question that that we, either one of us could uh, research more, but I think that tradition goes back about a thousand years. Um, the, the the way that it, it that it's been given to me or portrayed to me is that it's a way of reminding ourselves that God is with us in the worst of times as well as the best of times. That, um, uh, you know, it's Holy Week right now, and uh, we I believe that Jesus just loved us to death, and that people said, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, we're gonna kill you, and that he essentially said, I'm gonna do what I need to do, and you do what you need to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep loving because that's what I am and that's what I do. And so I just think when I see a crucifix, it's just a reminder to me of uh, 
of loving without limits because we are already made in the divine image and we don't need to think of ourselves as only human. I never use that phrase. When people do, it's usually kind of depressing. Yes. Or, or, or it's expressing frustration. Quit asking me to do more. I'm only human. Well, yeah, except you're made by the divine and you have the divine spark in you. You're, you have it in you to be more than human. Yeah, uh, you're literally made in the image. <laughs> yeah, and, you, and because of that, you will survive your death. Wow. Everybody does. And All right. So, so based on what you just said, what would what would you say to someone like my friend who's who's who suggested respectfully suggested, boy, I how about the centerpiece is the resurrection, not the crucifixion. Not that you would hide the crucifixion; it could be elsewhere in the church. But it seems I've been in many Catholic churches in my life. It seems to me the centerpiece is the crucifix more so than iconography of the resurrection. Well, I remember in my, my, I grew up in Southeast Texas and, you know, as our church went through Vatican II, I was about, let's see, I was nine years old when the Vatican Council ended. The mass had shifted from Latin to English a couple of years before that. Uh, and in, in one redecoration of the church, I remember the crucifix being taken and put in a side chapel and being replaced in the main altar with a figure of the resurrected Christ. Ah. Oh. So it could be church by church that they, the Catholic Church, Catholic churches have the freedom to decide where the where the symbols go, and it could, well, obviously, we're not the first person to ever have people to have this conversation. That there, it could have been that the church I brought my friend to, centering the crucifix, wasn't indicative. It wasn't a blanket statement that every Catholic church has to do it this way. Although that would have been the most common, uh, yeah. a, a crucifix with the corpus on it at the front is very, very common. And New York City's most of its churches are more than 100 years old, yeah. or 200. So it, you would expect to find um, artwork that was period uh, appropriate that went up at the, at the time the church was built, and that would have been that would involve uh, okay. the body. And that's still the most common. Are you familiar with um, with uh, Divine Mercy? And Divine Mercy Sunday? No, that doesn't sound it, familiar. It's the week after Easter, the Sunday after Easter, and it, it there was a vision given to um, a sister or now Saint Faustina, a Polish nun, and in it, it's it doesn't involve a crucifix, but it involves the resurrected Christ with the wounds in his hands and feet, and then rays of blue and red and white coming out of the heart. Uh, to demonstrate God's mercy. You must have seen some of those depictions yeah. of, of the risen Christ with the Absolutely. wounds. And sometimes the wounds have light coming out of them. Yes. So that's that's also an ancient depiction. That's not just some liberal, you know, uh, art of the moment. It's That's been in the church's tradition for a very long time. The idea of the wounds being the place where the healing light comes from okay well, i appreciate that and, and i and i'm gonna take i'm gonna take the advice you said of this requires a lot more digging to find to have a more of a historical context so as we wrap up here i what i wanted to get to is that um someone listening to this um what advice would you give them if they felt they had some type of gift to share, but either didn't know how to share it or felt self-conscious about sharing it, or even if that gift was just very personal, to go back to something you said at the beginning of wanting to know how to speak from realm to realm, particularly to deceased loved ones. But just in general, what would you say to someone who feels like they 
they yearn for to for these gifts but don't know how to either access them or release them out of even just societal pressure all right the first thing i would say is what i already said is that don't seek spiritual gifts because they're sexy or uh, marvelous or something like that um, that's just a bad idea uh, you don't try to uh, impress yourself or impress your friends with parlor tricks or whatever <laughs> just, just don't don't go that route uh, if you and and then if you uh, I believe that uh, the pattern that I see in the person of Jesus is a universal pattern that expect suffering if you uh, have these gifts come your way uh, don't expect it to tickle and don't expect a round of applause or people to be in awe of you or anything uh, with it will come with with fame will come infamy interesting okay uh, so just be, be a big boys and girls about this <laughs> not you're not going to get a universal round of applause for doing any of this kind of work um but but if you if it's coming your way and you and it's already part of your life and you feel like you've quashed it uh you could always go back to it and say to god however you and god talk I'm, I'm receptive and open to the next thing and then seek out help. Uh, I'm sought out sometimes, but there are lots of other people. If you start searching for, uh, you, I don't know how you found me. I think you heard me on a podcast. Didn't yes. You? Yes. There's lots of podcasts about um, spiritual phenomenon and, you know, I'm a Catholic priest, but I try to be, I, one of my phrases is, you know, you probably know somebody that does yoga, don't you? Yes. Do they want to become Hindu? No. Usually not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're just they're accessing something in one of the world's great religious traditions that seems healthful and wholesome. And I believe I try to be that Catholic priest for people that aren't Catholic. If you contact me with a question, I'm not going to try to Catholicize you. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great. That's a great verb. <laughs> I'll just try to help you, and and but I'll ask you questions about what your spiritual life is, and that I might be able to give some pointers on how to take what you've got and improve upon it. Wonderful. Uh, well, thank you for being that person and that priest, because I don't hate to tell you that there are stereotypes and then there are clergy people all across the religious spectrum who have done their part to create those stereotypes. And so, yes. so when I, when I encounter someone like you, it just, you, you just feel like, ah, oh, this was meant to be this conversation. And it's just so encouraging to know that, that, as you said, there's many people out there, whether they are in or out of some type of clergy, who are doing these these explorations and seeking to live this life of service. So I, I really appreciate what you do, and I appreciate you taking time to chat with me. I, I just had a wonderful time talking and with you. And to your audience, if if any of you have, are grieving the loss of a loved one who died suddenly and violently, please don't assume they're stuck. They probably aren't. Uh, uh, I think... Uh, don't make it make don't make your grief harder than it has to be by loading it up with ideas that now oh my god now she's stuck well no it's, i don't think that happens all the time or even to the majority of cases but even if it does i just believe the afterlife provides everything that people need all they really need to do is uh cooperate with the grace that's given you can pray for them gently but don't pray for them with anxiety oh that's wonderful advice yeah you can you can you can 
lay back and think of them doing uh, cartwheels and somersaults uh, yes. without without getting called in for dinner. Like 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 if you if you're going to manifest an image in your mind and and kind of fixate on it, that uh, you gave us some of these images. You know, some yeah, of, or a bouncy house at a party. A, a bouncy house, <laughs> or learning how to write a book when you didn't write a book while you were on Earth. Like yes. like you, you, you've given people alternative and i think that's such a valuable bit of advice we underestimate how powerful our minds are but yet when we envision something negative it feels so real yes but we very rarely flip that coin and say well why wouldn't i envision something positive because it'll feel equally as real it's not about the circumstances yes and but sometimes people's uh, loved ones that died suddenly and traumatically did so after a a decade of drug abuse Mm. or um mental illness or uh, something where it's so it's been so long since they saw the happy version of their loved oh, one good point. That, it, that, that it's hard for them to imagine their loved one being happy in the afterlife. And I would just say to such people, um, just pray gently, you know, just, just express love to your loved one and don't feel responsible for, for their outcomes and so on. Just, just wish them well and pray in support of them. And, uh, and then, uh, Turn your attention to the people around you. Don't spend too much time worrying about somebody's afterlife because there are people right around you that need your love. Amen to that. Father Nathan, thank you so much for this excellent conversation. I really, truly enjoyed it. Thanks for the good work you're doing. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here. I trust you're enjoying this episode, but I wanted to take a quick break to request that you seriously consider becoming a paid subscriber to Post Woke, because Post Woke is more than this podcast, which is a weekly podcast with crucial, important conversations with crucial and important guests. Post Woke is also a Substack on which I post on a daily basis. I'm talking about written posts. And I, first and foremost, I am a writer. I have 12 books out and I have been writing for many decades. And so you are getting quality content at least once a day, all for $5 a month. And no matter what you decide, you can become a free subscriber if you choose. I ask you to please share the link and spread the word. And while you're at it, Check the show notes for information on how to order the post-woke t-shirt. It is a completely cool, kick-ass shirt, and you could show the world what your favorite podcast and Substack is. So I thank you in advance for your support. Again, I urge you to spread the word, and let's get back to the show. I know how I feel about my excellent conversation with Father Nathan, and I'm not here to tell you how you should feel. But I strongly believe, very strongly believe, that there is at least one universal lesson to be found in there. And I think there are many, but I'm going to focus on one. And that is, this world needs each and every one of us to discover our gifts, our individual unique skills that can be put into action in collaboration with others to make the world a better place for individuals and collectively. We don't need any more people in 
dwelling in environments of despair and negativity, convinced that nothing they do is ever going to cause improvement. What we need is someone who is out there. We need more people who are out there seeking solutions, seeking solidarity, and always keeping their guard up. <music>